Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 3, where we explore all things sports coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings for a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. As always, three excellent guests join me this week, so please could you introduce yourselves and tell us your current role? Yeah, thanks, Phil. Um, my name's Jack Moran. Um, I'm currently head of rugby at Norwich School. Um, I was at Denston College as director of rugby for the previous four years, and alongside those in the last five years, I've worked in the pathway within the 16 groups at Leicester Tigers. Uh, hi, uh, my name's Mark Grigg. I'm currently an assistant director of sport and the head of rugby at St Joseph's College in Ipswich. And uh, alongside that, I have sort of recently had roles supporting with the, the London and South East under 18 setup. Uh, and before that, have had a roles both within the academy pathway and uh, the county programme as well. Hi, my name's Andy Skeen. I'm Director of Rugby at St Michael's College in Dublin, Ireland. Um, I'm also currently Head Coach of Leinster Schools um, and I also operate a rugby consultancy company with some clients in Ireland, the UK and the US. Fantastic. Jen's an absolute pleasure to have you all on. Thank you very much for uh, giving up your time and joining us. Uh, just a quick reminder to all the listeners to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content we discuss and recommendations to other high quality content. So, Jack, we're coming to you first. What is it that you're going to talk to us about? Yeah, thanks, Phil. Um, so, something that I've been really interested by recently, um, it was released in January, I think, and it was the pathway coaching position statement that was produced by both the AIS, the English Institute of Sport, and UK Sport um, as part of their vision, really, that they want to make coaching the UK's competitive advantage, or I guess Team GB, and looking towards international competition and so on. Um, and specifically, Pathway, this position statement is regarding sort of the elevation of understanding the importance of Pathway coaching, um, the role in itself, what it entails, how important it is, and why I think what comes across is that they feel more needs to be done around developing coaches in that space um, and raising the profile of it as much as anything. Um, yeah, interested for lots of reasons, really. Um, discussing sort of all the different things that people working at that level will need to consider, um, what it is and what it is in their view and what it is not also. Um, and equally just they view it really I suppose the best way that I've heard it and read it is it's a starting off point not an end point I think when we're looking at things like coaching content and positional statements like this we I think people sometimes expect like right what is the answer you know is there an answer in this that will sort of tell me this is what you need to do if you're working at this stage or age and so on um, and then I'll just take that and deliver it infinitum or whatever they really have sort of put this out there as a starting point to, as I say, raise awareness, start um, an improvement, a development of coaches working at that space and level. Great stuff. Thanks, Jack. Um, 
I'm interested, do you want to dig a little bit deeper into kind of what they tee up and, and start to suggest of they, you know, are they kind of presenting any detail around how that might start to happen and who that falls back on? Is, is that them kind of proposing this or is that them down to the governing bodies and, and their own kind of pathways or processes for those coaches? What are, what are they kind of looking to actually put in on the ground, I guess? Yeah, I think there's a few things in that. I think there's a big thing that there's a, that there has been or there possibly still is in certain areas and so on, a thing of pathway coaching can sometimes be the watering down or the dilutement, for want of a better word, of elite coaching, sort of the practices that go on at the top level will dilute those a little bit, we'll water those down and we'll use those with adolescents and developing players, athletes, participants. Um, the contention here that they make here is that that is not what it is and it's actually more formative. It's more of a defining period in terms of setting the identity of the athlete up for the journey that they're going to go on through the latter stages of development and into the elite setting, if that if that's where they do end up, as they, I'm sure, hope to. Um, and then also sort of clarifying that they view the elite coaching as refining, i.e., um, you know, looking for the edges, looking for the improvements, the small improvements that will relate to outcomes on the field, whereas that pathway coaching is more of a formative thing. Um, and actually then they delve a little bit into the case of, well, to do that, you're going to need some knowledge of concepts that influence talent development and, and coaching at that age, things like the relative age effect. Um, a high level of knowledge of pedagogy is something they touch on in a big way. Um, and the point there is, you know, do you know, do you understand the things that influence an adolescent when they're coming through a performance pathway or a talent pathway um, and and what impact that has on them as a developing person? And then do you have a significant enough range of strategies at your disposable that you're comfortable using that can enhance, negate, support that is appropriate in response to that, what they are experiencing? Um, and further to that point, there's the there's the point that we're at the elite end, we've kind of got coach and athlete, and they're working to a very distinct, clear outcome goal um, through the pathway. You've actually got so many different influences and factors that they view the pathway coach as orchestrating. Um, so you've got parents, obviously siblings, um, school coaches, club coaches, talent development environment coaches. Um, strength and conditioners, uh, physios, and and but and the view is there that all these things need to be aligned for best impact. So creating coherence on what the strategies we're using are in response to the state and um, stage and age they're at. So I think and and underline that obviously because I've said a lot there and I don't want to get to get too muddled. But the fact is it is complex. Um, and it is a really difficult job in itself. I think uh, Jack's kind of um, outlined, um, you know, straight away you've identified the issue with any type of pathway that's laid out. Some some coaches will feel that it's the the be all and end all of where um, what should be done. And of course, these things are really really well thought out in the general sense. Um, but I think that point of it being, you know, it has to be contextualized towards a specific team, specific individual. And that can be very, very difficult um, when people are so eager to act on what is 
generally incredibly valuable information or um, development pathways or anything like that. So I think when I when I look at um, you know pathway or a model for a pathway, it's always you know keeping that point in mind that Jack was talking about, adapting it towards your specific environment and taking what's relevant out is um, probably the the art of interpreting it um, for each individual coach. It's just one of those things that broadly and generally, these are incredibly good guides, um, but they have to be refined, I suppose, which is the word that Jack used in, in terms of the, the coach for the specific context of the environment you're in. I think they're great points. And it's it's definitely a conversation I've had on, on here with other guests before around, Pathways look lovely because they fit on an infographic that can go on social media and on websites. And the problem with that is they just lose all the nuance and, and all the kind of the individuality that, that goes with it. And as you say, the, the complex nature of it. So I'm, I'm going to steer us away from that, I guess, because it, it would be easy to get into that. And it's definitely one of my favorite conversations. But I, I think this poses a really good question around if, if there's a player pathway, should there be a pathway for coaches? So I open that up to all of you. You know, should we be identifying who those coaches are, how they progress down their own pathway in the same way that players do? I think that's an interesting point, Phil. And there is comment on this in the statement in terms of who you recruit and how you recruit to this environment, this um, these positions, who, who and how you recruit and so on. That's massively important as who is in there in the end making the decisions so the, the level of thought that goes into how and who you place in certain positions and roles certainly as you were mentioning governing bodies and orchestrators and managers of talent pathways there is a massive decision to be made there um, they use a very interesting example as well where a certain um, successful elite football coach and successful former player um, was quoted as saying you know I was offered lots of jobs I turned them down and took on the 18s at um, a certain football club and made the comment that that was a great space for, for that coach to make mistakes in. Um, you know, that was away from the spotlight. That was great for my development. However, based on what we know and the sort of statement that's been put forth, the contention is there, well, was that great for those 18-year-olds who were sort of your test dummy to some degree or another? Um, and actually were you watering down and replicating elite strategies and testing them on 18 year olds when actually they're probably needed and under 18s as we know in football that, that will probably range down to quite a young age in some senses um you know was that appropriate for them and that's where they want to create this distinction of it's a separate thing and people need to be developed towards the skills that are needed in that setting and not sort of we've got everything and you can try things here and you can try things there and they'll cross over and they, they possibly won't. I, I think it, it's worth noting as well with, within any pathway, uh, you're going to see a, a wide, a wide base at the entry point of, of that pathway and uh, the way in which uh, certainly in, we, we see in rugby, but uh, I'm sure in many other sports as well at the base of that pathway uh, whilst the statement that was released asks for expert coaches with the, the requisite knowledge and skills to, to provide that talent development opportunity, we actually rely on, on volunteers. And that's the, the reality of, of, of where we're at and, and, and where the sport is at and, and 
where where we are at our stage of professionalism as well as a sport when when we look at rugby and, and there are far far more sports that if you look at some of the olympic sports that have far less funding and far less support than than, than rugby does and um that that's always going to bring with it its challenges because actually um if, if we're if we're honest about the way that that people look to develop and seek to develop their careers there, there comes a time when fine in our lives when 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 financial uh, incentive plays a part in a decision not necessarily is the decision but plays a part in the decision and um you know i think one of the one of the early points jack made was about putting the right coaches and then even the the anecdote he's, he's just shared is about having the right coaches um in the right places to meet the the learners at the point at which they're at and you know that's that's an eternal struggle i think we, we we're going to have uh, and and to go back to your initial point phil that is why coach development is is paramount to to any pathway being successful and identification and recruitment of the right people um the answer you know jack i think uh, and on that mark there's um there is a point in the in the statement around there needs to be more funding to ensure that coaches are recruited into this setting and they don't view this as a a sort of a, something they step through to then earn higher wages and so on when they go on to work with um, elite or or sub-elite adult performers, um, and and also the you know the, the the wages and so on is one thing, but also the status of it and raising the importance that this is a job in itself. We need people who specialise in this um, and take it as a serious career and not something they just pass through. There's just a couple, a couple of interesting points on that. One would, one would be the obvious one is that uh, a player pathway is much easier to understand in our own minds because, well, in, in development stages, they're literally churning through the system from one age group to the next, to the next, to the next. It's not that clear a progression for a coach. It's not even clear should a progression really exist because obviously you can make an absolutely fair argument that the person coaching the under eights is actually more important than the person coaching the, the under twenties or, a, or a senior side. So those arguments can be made. I think it's just when coaches start establishing themselves as successful, now exactly what that is, that's up for debate. Some people will be the environment that they've created um, the competency of the players, the enjoyment of the players. There's all different types of measures for that. But as they start establishing some sort of, um, what others have said is successful, they'll usually be put in more and more responsible positions. I think one of the points about recruiting the coaches, there's um, um, there's a book which probably somebody, uh, maybe a couple of you guys have read called Every Moment Matters by John Connolly. And um, it's a really good read, but the, one of the points it makes is they look at um, sports in the US and children who drop out of sport who've had a... Um, accredited co coach in their chosen sport uh, versus children who drop out with a coach who wasn't accredited and in those very early age groups something that I'm not familiar with myself that there's huge differences I now I, I can't remember the exact uh, the exact numbers but I mean differences of 50 60 percent in dropout rates compared with with a certified or uh, coach from the the body of the sport that issues the certification versus the, volu the, the volunteer who didn't have the certification. So it's, 
you know, we've already identified the importance, and the book makes this point better than I can. We've already identified the importance of having a qualified person in the educational atmosphere in a primary school, into a secondary school, and into university and college education. Um, and we have all types of um, formal training processes for these, but often at 3 p.m. Uh, or at 4 p.m., uh, they're handed off to somebody who's available. That's that's their prob their uh, most relevant uh, abilities that they're available at that time. Um, and it's just a really interesting idea because all those points about the statement about recruiting coaches and increasing funding, they're all really, really important. Um, but the, the practical implication is obviously much more difficult than the um, than coming up with the ideal picture. I I, yeah, I, I guess there's a lot of realities to, to pull into this, isn't there? But I think it's a natural thing as competitive or driven individuals that a lot of coaches would be. They, we want to challenge ourselves and we want to progress and we want to see that there's a development in that. And I think, I mean, I've had conversations, you know, coaches that I'd mentor or develop or work with and then you know okay well where where do you want to be what's your ambition I want to be in the pro game I want to be doing this and you kind of just go in like I, I don't want to be crushing your dreams here but yeah that that's great and if, if that's your ambition absolutely but how realistic a, an actual you know opportunity to to get there have you got because you're not a former professional you're not currently at a level where you're working full-time with an academy or and and you know have you have you really assessed the landscape of how you'd actually go through and be good enough and have enough profile and enough credibility and all these other things to to push yourself there without even getting into actually how much and and I'll be slightly controversial potentially how much of a better coach you would need to be than somebody that's got profile to even get a look in ahead of them. I, I genuinely think if it was a straight shootout, you'd need to be, you know, just hundreds of percent better than them to actually be able to overcome the fact that you haven't operated or, or played or whatever at that level. And, and that's not to be negative of, there's some very good ex-professionals, arguably, um, you know, that, that's where the game has gone. But I, I do just feel like, actually, do we need to be far more realistic with our... Um, with our own goals as coaches as to, to how far down an imagined pathway or career kind of pathway we can get. I'm, I'm not sure. Andy, do you want to jump in? Yeah, ju just, um, I, it's, these things kind of go, I think a bit in swings and roundabouts with the maturity of the sport. Like if you look at, um, if you look at the NFL, which has been professional for a very long time, I mean, a, a lot of the head coaches are not players who played in the NFL. Um, I think there's a bit of a swing and a roundabout into the soccer. I'm not that familiar with soccer. I don't watch it that much, but I do know that some very highly regarded managers weren't uh, absolute top level players. Now in rugby at the moment, there's, you know, there's probably a bit of a mix there. Like, I mean, if you look at some of the most high profile coaches in the world and some of the ones with the greatest success, Eddie, obviously Jones, uh, Joe Schmidt, uh, Graham Henry, um, you know, they're, 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 they were teachers. I think Steve Hansen was a policeman. So, I mean, uh, I mean, I suppose Dean Richards was a professional and a policeman. So uh, he, had, he had the mix of, of both. But yeah, I think they'll kind of all balance out over a long enough period of time. If we're looking at, um, you know, what's in vogue now, I mean, it, it's probably more that, you know, ex-professionals are taking those um, more high profile positions. I think there's great value 
if a coach is engaging whatever level he's involved in in a kind of rich, meaningful and varied way, I think that is, you know, you're going to have as big an impact. Um, it might be just our own ego or the, uh, or the ego of coaches in general that want to uh, go along. And I think Phil said an imaginary pathway, which, yeah, I think it, it probably is. Um, I think focusing on the here and now, making it as much about the players as you can, you, you won't go far wrong in what you're doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the level of progression you can probably bring to your own career within those environments, I think it is um, right to say is probably quite limited. I think, as you said, Phil, um, just talking about the number of people who you might have those conversations with, where they talk about their dreams and goals and aspirations as a coach. Um, so you multiply that by the number of young developing players that they might come into contact with. Um, and every player who they're coaching, let's say they coach um, in a school setting, a club setting, and maybe a bit in the pathway. And then every every player that they come into contact with is almost like that we're, we're going to cascade or, or water down these things that I think are relevant in the professional game. And I'm going to supplant those onto you. Um, they're not all that relevant. Um, well, they're definitely not relevant in the here and now. And, and some of the things that you need in the here and now are the things that will allow you to do those things in the future. But if I'm not giving them to you now, then who does give them to you, if ever? And I think, I thought it was really interesting when you had Ian Costello on last week and he was talking about how, or was it two weeks ago possibly, but um, he said how Bristol are mega structured, but they can all pass the ball, they can all catch and pass. So so they're unpredictable. And it's, it's more nuanced than structured is, structured is, you know, boring and dull and predictable and unstructured is, uh, you know, Jouet and can't defend that um, but the key point there is that those players that are in that system at Bristol they've got a broad range of skill um, that we need to be implementing at a younger age for them then they can play structured or unstructured it doesn't it won't really matter if they've got that broad vocabulary of skills yeah I, I would make the point that you know, the game is a mixture of unstructured and structured play and um, you know I think it's there's nothing wrong with having structure in your game when the boys are in adolescence and there's nothing wrong with having unstructured parts. You're going to need both and they're going to need both in, into the future. Um, I think the narrative of what structured is and unstructured is can be really hijacked by the media as if there's um, some great, um, you know, almost idyllic uh, picture of unstructured play and that France are the embodiment of this when it goes right. I mean, France's uh, score against England was uh, the one off the line out, which was absolutely amazing to watch. Incredibly structured this, uh, piece of play where I don't believe an English defender touched a French player in possession of the ball. Um, and that was great to look at. But And they mix it up when they get their try. Um, Olivon scored against uh, Ireland, um, which was off the back end of a structured play to to move Ireland around and then when they got in behind them and you've got the skills of to become active like DuPont and, and players of that ilk they were then able to mix the unstructured and the structured and that's what I think great rugby is I actually think Exeter are a great example of this as well um, where they have clearly quite a lot of structure in the game but they can punish you in so many ways and and uh, also my my home team of Leinster as well they, they do you know sometimes the criticism against um some of the teams is how ruthless they are from five meters out. But 
I think it's a good thing if they can score when they're five meters out and um, Exeter do it very well, Leinster do it very well, but they can also hurt you in so many different ways. Um, and it's about finding a you know, really good balance between the structured and the unstructured. And I think a lot of teams um, don't get the credit that they probably deserve for it. Just to, to drag this slightly back towards the, the pathways and, and some of the, the original statements, and but, but, but touching on that, I think one of the other things that... Um, perhaps you know requires some some thoughts and attention is the 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 current perceived certainly difference between what we are trying to coach at the top end of the game and what we are trying to coach within talent development environments so i you know within a school certainly a hundred percent talent development uh, we are looking to to promote skill skill development but also creativity and uh, better understanders of the game and I've been on I've been fortunate enough to be on three webinars since January since we went back into lockdown with with three directors of, of rugby at three of the premiership clubs who have all uh, given a nod to the fact that that this is desirable creative rugby is desirable but but actually within that environment um it's it's not played upon and, and what we've got is a, a whole raft of coaches that are coaching um almost you know uh, a dream style of rugby and the players that are transitioning through the pathway and transitioning into the professional environment are not playing the same level of, of, of rugby and and i know from conversations with, with you know some of the coaches that used to be in, in the england pathway um perhaps you know most renowned for for some of their creativity and some of the, the the techniques that they've used and then they're still in touch with some of the players that they were that they were coaching who have just said actually you know that was really good and we loved it and yes it developed us as a player but we're using a completely different skill set now that, that's interesting isn't it because are you i mean yeah in terms of the, the Magic Academy guys and and I guess a few other people that are kind of operating that part, they, they would talk a lot about what's the game of the future or the game of tomorrow. And I think that's that's the really interesting one, isn't it? Because is a is a premiership DOR, um, and I don't know many personally, so I can't really comment, but are they are they worried about the here and now or are they thinking about what are what are these players going to allow me to do in the future? And I guess somebody like Marcus Smith, we were talking about off camera before we started, is a good example. Can, can you play a different level of rugby or a different style of rugby because of the skills and the decisions and the athleticism that somebody like he brings to a team? Um, does that shift rugby on? Does that evolve the game? So actually, if is otherwise it becomes a factory, doesn't it? The, the 18s and the 20s and the academies and everybody below that is only ever there to, to produce players based around what the game looks like currently. Well, if you're a 15-year-old, you could be, four, five, seven, ten years away from playing first team. So actually, is I think that's a great question. Is that your responsibility to, to coach them in the here and now or to coach future potential? And there's going to be a bit of a balance and, and it's nuanced, isn't it? It's complicated. But um, And have we seen players, you know, an, an obvious player, I think, that, that many people might go to that, that actually perhaps has been there in the past is someone like Danny Cipriani. Uh, is the the top end of the game prepared to shift its perception of, of, of what, uh, I don't know, an international fly half should be to meet someone that's pushing boundaries or actually are we going to reject them? 
and are we going to continue to reject them and and actually uh, you know when we when we look at some of the statement that, that jack originally referred to and we look at and um look at pedagogical knowledge and, and areas like that the reality is we uh those of us that work within the talent development arena could could be very well versed and and, and very knowledgeable and, and certainly i'd hope that many of our colleagues in schools are and, and more and more coaches are, are taking an interest in their development but we can offer all of these opportunities and actually if if players at the top end i i know for a fact i've, I've got players that are starting to transition into different environments who are feeding back to me that the environment they're going into is more structured and, and can we have more structure back in the game sir interesting uh jack i'm already conscious of time so just yeah go go with a quick one and then uh, round us off as well yeah i just think what you referenced there you talk we, there's a need to create constructive alignment isn't there between your pathway and your elite end in terms of there are different skills and so on but they're they're preparing what you are defining will then be refined it's not to say that they're separate but they are different um and i think there's you know Obviously, everyone likes to go to New Zealand, but the, the constructive alignment in terms of Scott Barrett's got a got a problem with his discipline. He's going to captain the Crusaders this season because he consistently gets you know red carded and whatever. He's probably going to do that a bit less, or he's certainly going to have to think a bit more and be a bit more present in the way he conducts himself at all times on the field if he's captain in that environment. Um, is Scott Robert uh, is Scott Barrett the best person to captain the Crusaders if it was solely? solely, solely, solely on winning the title at the end of this year. With the personnel in their environment, possibly not. But there might be eyes pointing on the North Star or whatever that's got them to that point. Uh, yeah, leave, leave some great question unanswered there. I think that's a really nice point to uh, to finish on. How, how can we, I guess, maybe be a, yeah, a little bit less... Uh, less selfish around what our needs are or the, the needs in the moment. So nice. Uh, cool. Mark, we are coming to you. What, uh, what are you going to talk to us about? Uh, so I thought I'd talk to you a little bit about uh, a book that I've just finished uh, reading or shortly uh, finished reading a, uh, a while back, which is called Seeing What Others Don't by uh, Gary Klein. He's a psychologist that has uh, taken a particular interest in the area of insight. Um, just a, a quick intro as to how I got here. I'm currently studying a, towards a professional doctorate at Leeds Beckett, and one of the modules is sense making. So, sort of part of my professional development in a very different arena, or, or rather, sort of within an academic arena, led me to reading this book. And, and the whole way through this this book, uh, as I'm as I'm reading about. Uh, insights and and the notion of uh, naturalistic decision making uh, I'm thinking of, of actually how this can be applied within my my applied setting and and, and out on a pitch coaching and in reality um, if we were to to say that as coaches we've, we've probably all been on a pitch and and asked a question and had communication thrown back at us uh, as an answer um, and perhaps try to then probe a little bit deeper into what communication is and what form of communication we're talking about. Um, I, I suppose that, that this book, Seeing What Others Don't and Exploring Insight, has made me look a little bit deeper and delve a little bit deeper into uh, what 
decision making is uh, and and when we say right we're going to focus on decision making what what is it that we're we're actually uh, trying to bring about and what is it that we're actually looking to coach and um one of the things i found um really quite intriguing was that he he highlights certain types of, of activity that occur that lead to insight and he defines insight as the discovery of new patterns and and ultimately based on you know certainly any team sport we are constantly trying to discover new patterns uh, the patterns may be similar but they're going to be different patterns uh, and, and different pictures that we're seeing and uh, the, the five areas that, that he defines in this book, and I know that some refinement has taken place since this was first written, are connections, coincidences, curiosities, contradictions, and then creative desperation. And I suspect that the vast majority of our decision-making process um, focuses around connections, making connections, uh, identifying uh, that someone's hips have turned in and, and responding accordingly, identifying that we can see a mismatch and responding accordingly. So, you know, we've we've uh, we've probably all, as players at some point, done that two-on-one drill where we run around a cone and, and, and are faced with uh, with one defender, um, and that might be seen in, in various different guises these days. But but ultimately, we practice that so that when we see that in a game, we make that connection and we produce that skill. And it just made me think if we if we tend to focus on uh, insight as connections a lot, how do we focus or how could we focus on uh, some of these other areas? So uh, coincidences, curiosities, certainly with curiosities, I, I wonder how many of our players, especially young players are testing teams are genuinely, you know, in the early stages of, of a game, whether that be a training game or, or a more competitive fixture, how often are we actually testing our assumptions? How often are we uh, looking to, to to test their defensive systems, their uh, attacking systems by changing what we're doing? Or do we uh, do we go out with this is our, our game plan, this is our system, this is the style of defence we do? And actually, um, I know certainly as a coach, um, uh, and, and as I'm talking now, we have at St. Joseph's College, our first team operate uh, a, 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 a defensive system, which is the same for around 70% of the, the area of the pitch. And, and actually, by doing so, are we, are we asking them to necessarily test these curiosities and, and, and to probe a little bit more and, and perhaps find answers? Um, contradictions. The more we, one of the things that, that was offered to us is the more we, the more we see, obviously the more we can make connections, but the more we see, the more opportunity we have to see things that are out of place as well. And, and actually, what, what might that look like um, for, for a coach looking for that? What might that look like for a player that's, that's looking at? So when things stand out because they're wrong, as opposed to, because they're right. And I don't know whether that might look like mismatches um, or uh, other things. You know, there are certain assumptions. Um, I know there's an assumption that most of our players make that when they 
are going to receive a ball at a kickoff, there's going to be eight forwards roughly facing eight forwards on the other side of the pitch. And, and actually by just changing some of the pictures that we see, could we create more contradictions or, or even uh, explore some of these areas? And then we've certainly started to explore creativity a lot more in the, the, um, the move towards, uh, you know, large uh, swathes of, of coaches using cards as, as an area, you know, we've started to look at creativity within our coaching, but, but actually this, this term of creative desperation, how often are we genuinely um, exploring something, not because we saw another player do it, but because it, it might, it just might be the solution to the, to the problem that's in front of us. And there was a great anecdote in, in the book about this. Um, sad, but, but, but a great anecdote that, that just shows an extreme example of creative desperation and, and perhaps where fighting fire with fire comes from. Um, there was a group of, of people dropped in to a hillside to, to fight a, uh, a wildfire. And as they realised what a mistake they'd made by dropping in on, on this hillside as, as it was sort of starting to rage out of control. They, some of them started to, to turn and, and flee, but um, as I'm sure we, we sometimes see in the news, it's very, these things spread very fast. And the most experienced of them, the, one of the leaders within the group uh, started to run and then through um, what Klein recognizes as creative desperation, realized that outrunning this fire wasn't, uh, an opportunity, you know, it, it wasn't the solution, and set a fire right where he was, and the resulting impact was that all the fuel within the area he was in was burnt, and he dived into the ashes. And actually, as the fire went through, uh, he he received some burns, but but was one of the only survivors from this situation. And uh, that has since become a a practice that is applied so something that comes out of creative desperation and um and just makes me think a little bit about about creativity and and like i say really what what i'm intrigued to, to discuss with you guys is is just how we unpack decision making uh, as opposed to decision making becoming uh something that we say in the same ilk as communication or uh depth you know whatever it is what, what might it be I think that's fascinating. I'm just thinking back to, you know, younger years where I'd, I'd plan sessions and it would be like, right, well, this is the decision-making bit. And I'd look back now and be like, surely, surely all of it was the decision-making bit. Like how, how was I separating out decision-making and making that explicit in one part of the session and not another. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wrote down, is it a case of doing what we've, all, what we've always done? Um, I, I think all sport would probably suffer from that in various forms, but are, are we just ingrained? Um, you know, I, I think Kirk Vallis uses the term, the rivers of thinking. So all the little streams start off as their own, uh, you know, train of thought or line of thought. And ultimately they all end up in the same river and it's a big fast flowing river. So it's very difficult to get out of that river once you're in it. So actually is it, is that the, why we've seen disruptors as, as that? I think this is maybe a, a societal thing in, in maybe the last kind of five, 10, 10 years, almost just actually trying to challenge people to, to get out of that river and to, 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 you know, run with their own thoughts and not necessarily follow the crowd. I just, yeah. How, how much of that is based on our inability to, to do, to, 
yeah, I guess risk, risk reward, inability to do something different or, or inability to, to be willing to take that risk. I'm not, I'd be interested in, uh, in Jack and Andy's thoughts as well. I was, yeah, I'm really interested in the idea of decision-making and without going too into, because uh, the book I read has got a lot about that in it as well. But the, I, I think some of the, the ways that you, you start thinking about, they obviously change in time and your level of experience. And what I mean by experience really is just, you know, how long you've been coaching and, and what you see as the important part of the games and stuff like this. The point I want to make about, you know, what decision-making is, I, I remember maybe 12, 13, 14 years ago, maybe even as a player, potentially being coached in a way where I would have to look at like a colored cone and do a, an action based on it while also looking at something else. And I remember thinking that, that I thought this was great. I thought, yeah, look, uh, it's forcing me to look downfield or something like that, but it's so uncontextualized that that's not a cue in the game is the color of, of somebody holding something. I've got to be much more uh, in tune with the realities of the game and what actually is the environment that I'm going to be placed in. Now, that's a challenge for me now as a coach is to try and make sure that what the decision-making that comes up is not, it's never going to be exactly the same. That's the, the beauty of a field invasion sport, but that it is similar and that the perceptive cues that are on offer, um, you know, super exceed or it comes up more often than it does in the game if I want to work on that element of decision-making. Um, the example that I've read recently is um, in soccer, again, something I know very little about, so it's only something I've read, but where um, that idea of a coloured cone, they were looking for a player to receive a ball with the ball behind his back, or, or sorry, um, with the cone behind his back. So he would have to check over his shoulder to look at the coloured cone and then repeat that back to the coach as he control the pass with his touch but that information was not in any way relevant to what he would see in a game and I think there is a bit of a movement um, in rugby coaching where I see very um, things that are clearly difficult like they're difficult to do um, like you know I'm wearing an eye patch and I can only see with one eye it's not necessarily that relevant to a game because I can actually see with both eyes as long as I've um, got both eyes working still and I can look and take a cue um, using both eyes so therefore cutting off half that uh, sensory um, perception is maybe not a good use of, uh, of coach or practice design and the other thing with the and I, I like that point um, you know with regard there's an assumption the players that eight forwards are going to be on the side of a kickoff and there's another eight on the other side I mean I think yeah, there definitely is. Without coach intervention, that's the importance of the coach, is to identify um, not just that these things might be different from game to game, but not just to come up with a plan, but to give the players an idea of why this plan exists. So it gives them a tactical understanding, which they will always need, but certainly need down the line if they're ever going to play at a, um, at a performance level or a high performance level or an elite level. So, I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, it's, it registered in my head when he said that because, you know, my experience over the last couple of years is that we've, we've been teaching a standardized kickoff, but standardized towards dealing with a complete split of forwards or all forwards on the same, on the same side. So we're, you know, I, and we're explaining that to the players ahead of time. And I, I think that's the, 
um, you know, the difference between a problem solved and decision making. So the problem solving is ahead of time, but the decision making is within the moment. We need our players to have problem solving abilities, which will be, you know, the buildup of knowledge and that, um, and then they'll be able to act on that. And, and when, when will they problem solve? It might be before a big game where they're able to lay out and talk amongst themselves about things that might work in this game, or it's in the downtime in the game. So there's an injury, there's a small water break, there's been issues at the line out. We now can act ahead of time and come up with a strategy. And then that decision-making is that, that in real time where I have to decide what's going to happen next. And they're based on uh, you know, the cues of uh, the behaviours that they see in front of them with the defence, or maybe it's weather, or, or potentially how the referee might interpret an action. So it's getting clarity about what those two things are. Um, and I think that, you know, putting together cohesive thoughts on those, that, that example for me really of the colored cone and looking to identify a colored cone or act when you see a colored cone is where, it, it is the area that I really identify as something that we should be staying away from. So, so this, this lack of contextualized coaching, which might, might be very difficult to do, um, but it's not necessarily reflective of the cognition needed within a game environment. I, I think that's the challenge for us as coaches, isn't it? I often wonder whether the, what we want to try and achieve within the session, and I, I think I probably feel a little bit like this around the kind of ecological dynamic stuff at the moment, around affordances and the subtlety of the constraints and those types of things. And I'm like, I know what I want to achieve. I've just not got to a position actually in my own planning, in my own head, where I'm probably creative enough and subtle enough with the constraint to create the affordance to, to then enable that to happen. So I, I think it's that that's on us then to develop that. And Andy, interestingly, and I'll Jack, I'll come to you in a second. I, the, the, the example that sprang to mind was um, from lockdown one. So I guess last six nations, um, when England was still good, which was great, um, was the uh, the Wales game. And I think, so Kaz Morgan was on the Magic Academy and talked about how it was an improvised play where England scored uh, off a line out and kind of back on the inside in the hole, pretty much what Ireland did to England at the weekend. Um, and then I think Stuart Lancaster was on a, on a webinar the week after and said, well, that's a pre-planned move. And there was, I mean, social media just erupted in this, what well, is it pre-planned? Is it, is it on the hoof? And it, it ended up, it was a planned, that it's a rehearsed move that the players knew, but it wasn't a pre-planned call to, well, once we get here, we're going to use this. And it was just this perfect example of, here's something we know is in the locker and here's our decision makers going, well, they put the winger there, right, great, we're on for this. Like, this is, I just thought it was just that encapsulated it so nicely that, yeah, it's something they have practiced. It's something they all know what they're going to do. It was their decision on the pitch in that moment to go, we've teed them up for this, or this is now the, the best solution or option to, to put us in. And um, yeah, I'll have to find the clip because it was, it was definitely worthwhile. But um, Jack, come to you. I think there's a couple of things in there, Phil, like when you're wrestling with the subtleties of your constraints and so on, verbal instruction is still a legitimate method for supporting decision-making and giving information to your players is still legitimate and not um, sacrilege to some degree or other in some churches. Um, but I think I think that's the thing, isn't it, in terms of it, it really depends on what body of knowledge are your players operating from. So what age and stage are they? What is their access to 
watching lots of rugby, how much rugby do they watch that's at the level they will be playing at currently and are just shy of how much top-level sport, sport, never mind rugby, do they watch? Um, and then you can make decisions from that point in terms of, well, I could leave no one in the backfield and sort of hope they notice for the next 45 minutes or I could just say, by the way, lads, if there's no one in the backfield, you might get some gains out of kicking the ball. I haven't told them they have to but I've just raised their awareness or equally, you know, one, and, you know, did, is there any evidence that players are going to forget that very quickly or that makes them any less effective at spotting it just because they've been supported to reach that a bit quicker? I think, I think with all the time in the world, ideally players would realise everything for themselves, but there's lots of things toddlers and babies and children don't realise for themselves. They're, they're told and they're instructed and they're, and they learn that and then that's a habit for life and they're effective at it. So there's, I think there is more to it than just, I think I see the creative desperation stuff Mark's talking about in terms of recognising things on the hoof. And this is the, this is the out that no one else has seen because of the place I'm at on the pitch in relation to the opposition and all that kind of stuff. And then I think there's also the stuff, how much of it is shared mental models and offering a range of options to players that in X scenario, there are three things that would suit our principle of play. How that is panning out on the field at the time in terms of the opposition, the weather, all the things that feed into decision-making, then you you allow a bandwidth of freedom and, 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 and I guess it's a bandwidth of support and lack of support, absence of support, depending on what you're trying to develop, what you're trying to achieve in the game. Um, counter to your point about the Wales try for those anyone who's watched Chasing the Sun has there anything has there ever been anything more joystick coach or remote control coach than Rassi talking about the move in the final and the, the walking mall where they were going to hit the line out then it was going to get to 12 and then he screams into the microphone at the moment in the match we can get three points here and this is going to take us out of England's reach the move's happening now and it goes onto the field and so on. And it's a legitimate strategy because it's it's had the impact they wanted it to. But again, it depends on what you want to achieve, when you're doing it, who you're doing it with. Jack, I, I really I really agree with, with what you brought up there. I think the one of the interesting things, I, I, even though I, I really don't watch soccer, I've, I've raised it about three or four times now, but I actually do not watch it. I don't find it enjoyable. I find it pretty boring. I do read about it a lot because it seems to be that a lot of, you know, interesting books that are relative to coaching, often soccer is the, uh, is the, you know, the predominant sport that's discussed within the book. And I suppose it's just, you know, the numbers involved and, and that type of thing. The really interesting thing I found about it and, and it probably goes, I probably believe in it. Yes, it probably goes against a lot of uh, maybe, you know, mainstream rugby coaching thought is that the technical side of the game is the development aspect. So therefore, an adolescent player has to be developed purely really with technical ideals and that the tactical element gets put on top when they reach adulthood or performance level or elite level. And, you know, the soccer thought process doesn't work like that is that the tactical element and the development of the tactical elements are as important as the technical elements from what I've read. Therefore, they should be introduced um, at, you know, at an age-appropriate level. But I think in soccer, that, that age-appropriate level, from what I've read, seems to be you know, the early teen years. And I find that really interesting because 
um, you can get a lot of commentary, and a lot of it comes from the professional game actually, which is um, which is interesting because you know the professional game may not be as ha- well, it wouldn't be as hands on with the the younger development ages, and it and it usually uh, come, it goes around the idea of the technical side of the game is the part of the game that must take precedence. And I, I suppose what I'm saying is soccer or what I've read about soccer seems to challenge that a little bit. Not that one should take precedence over the other, but that they're both as important in the developmental um, stages of, of players. I, I think that raises a really good question. I, I was just thinking of where, where I would kind of sit. And I, I guess my answer would probably be if, if players at that younger age are just focusing on technical, I, I would just argue all the games they're playing and all the training they're doing is probably a lost opportunity to develop tactical understanding at the same time. And I just think if, if there's a void of it, I don't think it has necessarily has to be at the forefront of everything. I think you can go through some cycles where you're going, look, we're just going to really concentrate on some really good technical elements. And I think then you could just shift that a little bit to now we're going to talk more tactically and, develop some of that but I, I don't think you, you you have to do one or the other do you know what I mean they're not mutually exclusive and I, I would just look back at if, if a player gets to 17 18 and they've not done five six seven eight years if they come all the way through of tactical development you kind of go shit have we have we missed a chance here like have we missed a big opportunity to get this player as Jack said earlier to, to watch the game and learn the game and understand the game and and have a love for the game because I mean I genuinely remember the the light bulb moments when I started coaching, I was just like, I wish I could go back and play because I see the game so differently now. And I'm just stood there like, how, why am I the only one that can see this? Like I'm, I'm watching 15 guys, like, you know, and there's all that space in the backfield or there's a huge overlap or we know their 12 can't tackle. Like without sounding egotistical, I'm just still on the touchline going, how is it that none of the guys on the field are seeing this? Like, and that's that I think is a frustration, isn't it? And actually, can we can we develop that awareness? Um, and I think awareness is probably maybe a good way to to summarise some of that in the moment awareness. Can we develop that a bit earlier? Um, because I, ca- I can't really see a downside of it, to be honest. Go on, Jack, jump in. Yeah, we. So in the context I'm in at the moment, we're sort of in the in the stages of developing a curriculum that. What we're looking to cater really is a balanced diet, Andy. So on that point of is it technical, is it tactical? We we can give them a balance and the balance will shift through the ages and stages, but there's always going to be some element of counterbalance there. Um, and in the context I'm in, we get them sort of, we have a primary school on site and they start doing rugby from sort of under eights and they do invasion games before that um, in the pre-prep and stuff. Um and we've sort of looked at it and gone, right, well, these skills kind of precede these other ones. So, you know, passing left and right and kicking and kicking off both feet will precede different types of kick and different types of pass. So do those things, you know, looking at the skills that layer up where um, a catch tackle may then lead into a 1v1 ball strip, may then lead into a two-man dominant tackle and how we can layer those through the age groups. Um but also they pair quite naturally with tactical themes. So kicking would pair with territory as a broad sweeping theme uh, under 12s and so on. Um, you know, the ability to pass and catch and recycle the ball would fit into a theme of possession and how we use possession to our advantage. Um, 
and then you know your theme of um, get the ball back or whatever, all your things like counter up, jack or poach, whatever, however you um, jargonize those, they would fit to that tactical theme. So separate, I think there will be a balance where actually we can't access the tact tactical theme without a certain level of competency at the skills. But the tactical theme can start to be something they're aware of, albeit at a very introductory level that isn't difficult to understand. Before we add nuances, I think you've sort of alluded to, Phil, as well. Well, Mark, jump in. Yeah, we probably don't need a, necessarily a clearer um, understanding of this subject. Then it, it's got to, you know, Phil, I think you've said that there's got to be that marry that marriage between uh, the the tactical and the technical. But you know, we when we talk about coaching, we quite often break it down into tactical, technical, mental, and physical, and 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 actually. As much as we we might recognise those as independent areas, we also very much recognise that that when combined, uh, we are trying to to develop a player that is strong in all four of those areas. And and I've certainly coached players uh, in the past who have, in fact, I I know for a fact that that the, the player that I believe has had the best tactical understanding of the game I have ever coached was not physically capable of 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 implementing their understanding of the game and, and equally I, I I will have coached players who physically uh, were very very capable but haven't had the ta tactical or technical ability to to exploit that and and that's it you know I'll be honest we still see variations in that at the top level of the game so of course we're going to see that down at the developmental level of the game that that many of us are working at um, but I suppose it it really brings home that ideally a, a talent development environment and a curriculum that, that Jack's talking about developing is, is looking to marry that all together. Uh, yeah, again, I, I think that's a really nice place to, to kind of round this one off. And, and as you say, I, I guess it just puts that onus back on actually how, how individualised can we make it? Um, it it's generalizations are great for discussions like this they kind of have to be but ultimately we kind of live in a world where we we probably need to operate on a on a really specific individual level while still trying to account for all of the the additional pressures and and the realities of of sport in competitive environments and everything else so yeah interesting some good some good un, unanswered questions which i always enjoy um andy last one uh what is it you're going to talk to us about yeah so um the, uh, two things so the, the book, um, uh, The Coach's Guide to Teaching um, by Doug Lemoff, uh, Lemov is the name. Um, and it's a pretty uh, recent book. He's doing the book tour. So I think there's podcasts with him uh, all over the internet at the moment. And I always like to get a bit of additional kind of um, more spontaneous talk from the author. So it's something good to look at. Um, book ba basically, um, uh, Doug's been a successful writer with a, with uh, books uh, based in education and a lot of it uh, focuses, you know, it, it hits on a few different areas. I suppose the area for me that's been most interesting is a lot of it's about feedback and the role of the coach and stuff like that. And, he, you know, he sets his stall out pretty, uh, pretty quickly and he, and he makes the statement that the game isn't the best teacher. And we probably heard the, the positive of that comment so much. Um, and, you know, you know, the point he's making is that, you know, it's not necessarily the best teacher, it's an unequal teacher. And frameworks within invasion games are needed to help understanding, to help uh, or to, to allow players to adapt that understanding, 
uh, and apply some of the principles and become better problem solvers and decision makers throughout the game. Um, he also, uh, you know, he makes a point that teaching better is a technical pursuit and it's pretty mundane. It's pretty mundane when you start getting a lot of experience. It's it's noticing a lot of small detail all the time, um, and it's um, you know trying to correct it in a, in a way that's meaningful for the players. Um, he, he he kind of um, you know develops that a little bit further. That I think um, John Wooden said, and this is me paraphrasing the good John Wooden rather than me. Um, remembering exactly everything he said but he made that point that you know that players won't play until they know you care about them and while this book um it doesn't challenge it at all it just builds upon it it says that um showing you care is the prerequisite but having some level of excellence that you can actually help that player perform better make him uh, or her better athlete actually help them get better um, and teaching well is a tool that actually you can connect with athletes with so after you've established that prerequisite of caring uh, you take it a step further and and you then start teaching and teaching the sport and teaching it well and that will help you build a much stronger relationship one of the and this is quite early on in the book he has an observation um, and he quotes Pete Carroll uh, the uh, Seattle Seahawks, uh, American football coach and ex-university uh, USC coach. Um, and it talks about the discipline he has and all his assistant coaches have with regard to how they give feedback. And they basically say that they don't give any um, negative feedback. And that doesn't mean that they're just praising, praising, praising. But when something's not done to the required standard or technique or skill that is the Seahawks way, they frame their feedback in this is the way we do it rather than don't do it like that. And, uh, you know, you know, definitely I was amazed at the discipline of this. I mean, it could be applied to any coaching scenario, really. You right from an, somebody who's coaching once a week with an under eights all the way up to international men's. Um, I'm just thinking, wow, the discipline to go ahead with that as an individual and then as a staff to make corrections only in a positive light. This is the way that we do it. This is the way we will do it. Um, you know, he talks about, talks about doing the next, uh, the next time this comes up that he does it in this way rather than don't do it like this. That's not the right way. And these are the reasons why we don't do it like that. It's framing the positive. And again, it makes the point that this is very mundane stuff. I mean, it's not thrilling, exhilarating, uh, you know, sideline, um, you, you know, um, interference or anything like that. It's the mundane job of a coach with a real consistency of approach. Um, like I said earlier, but, you know, it brings up points um, that were discussed earlier around decision making. You know, it's, it's a question of perceiving cues, whether they be um, from the opposition or from other environmental factors in the game. Um, wanting to make the correct decision is not enough. Um, players have to recognise how to adapt to the cues that are in front of them. Um, looking for them, interpreting them and then acting on them. Um, and there was one really interesting example, which was about a piano um, teacher called Daniel I think Balansky is the um, pronunciation and the best version I can, and, and the student Charlotte Bennett. And they use these vision tracking um, 
glasses. And again, what they're trying to discover is what are the cues that are relevant here? And what they found was that the scope of information for the expert, so where the expert, the teacher's eyes were looking, were actually far more, was far smaller than the scope of movement to the eyes of the, of the learner. And I thought that was really interesting because, if, again, going back to that soccer example of glancing over the shoulder to see what's behind you, you know, I'm assuming that if this holds consistent, the likes of Lionel Messi, they filter out the noise. They filter that noise away really quickly because they understand the cues and what to look for. Um, and it's almost an intuitive experience at that point because they're such a master of their craft. Now, I'm, I'm sure that they had good coaches along the way that helped them identify what relevant cues are. And they built on their talent, their experience to really pull them out. Um, you know, and again, I gave that example of the, you know, the colored cone. If you're looking for that colored cone, are you really taking a cue that's relevant to the game and that learning experience around it? Um, I think it's, the I would imagine it's the same and, and the book makes this point as well. If you're a teacher in the classroom, you know, that note being passed by Johnny down the back, if you're a very perceptive teacher, you may not see the note being passed, but you're able to almost comment and correct it straight away because you have a feel for the room. Um, same for master coaches in terms of how we're delivering real information, um, without getting you know swallowed up in all the noise and maybe less relevant points um, and he makes the point that the masters they look at less but they see more and they have an experience filter they can filter down to what really is relevant um, the I want to go to make two more basically points about it and again there's so much in the book that's that's really relevant to all coaching whether it's even in invasion sports or otherwise but he, he puts out the point that the coach's job is to build knowledge in the player because the knowledge allows them to act and understand and change their behavior within a game. So the understanding of in-game situations, what are possible solutions? The player may derive a different solution, not one that is that the coach has necessarily laid out, but because of the buildup of knowledge that they're able to adapt their knowledge to the situation, maybe come up with a solution that the coach hasn't thought out. And I think that's really powerful. Uh, that's when you get to a really powerful stage of understanding and learning. And um, the knowledge that the coach gives the player needs to be really clear and really consistent. And um, it can't be unbelievably broad, even though we might feel we have all this information we want to get through. It has to be really clear and consistent and recalled. And, I, I, and that's why I really like the idea of a game model, because it gives you some real cues about what's important at the different points in the game. And, um, you know, that game model can help coordinate a response across the 15 different players in our chosen sport rugby. Um, it makes a further point that you can't teach critical thinking, problem solving, or decision-making decision in the abstract. It has to be specific. So it has to be towards specific situations. I think that really, um, we all want, I think, as if you're a developer of young people, an educator in any field or a coach in any sport, you really want to teach critical thinking, problem solving, and decision-making. You think it's an absolutely fantastic thing, but it can't be taught in the abstract and I really do agree with that I think it has to be specific to a situation whether that be in our sport rugby or something else um, you know it's it's and he gives us a great example about and this goes back to the point that we've already touched on which was about the um, the idea of uncontextualized learning or learning in, in the abstract 
there's a font called Sans Forgetica. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And it's what it is, is a font that's kind of unclear. And uh, it's kind of broken up. And, and when you look at it, you really have to concentrate on the word to read it. And the studies that have been taken out on this was, did people remember more of what they read if they had to really concentrate on the word? And the answer was, they didn't. So it, what he was trying to put forward the point, or, or what I feel he was, was that thinking well actually requires knowledge and facts. It's not just introducing um, difficult elements that have no context. And it's probably my internal criticism of some of the area I see rugby coaching, where we introduce things that are way out of context and maybe have actually no relevance to the sport, but we're saying that this is a good coaching activity because it's bringing in creativity. Well, it is creative. It's just not necessarily conducive to creativity uh, in a match in a rugby in a rugby environment. And, and the way I'd look at it is if we go into a classroom and take part in a creative um in a creative environment or even let's say if we if we pick um i know one of the cards things is self-organizing if we say to boys in the classroom get self-organized around that does that necessarily translate or is that the best use of a coaching point to get them to self-organize and i and i don't know if it is and i think this book goes along with that type of reasoning um yeah so that's a, a that that's that's only about a third of the book you could go on and on from there and i've kind of covered a lot of ideas from it but um yeah, really interesting read, and I recommend it to anyone. Fantastic. Uh, there's there's loads to unpick in that. I I just jumped back into kind of, uh, yeah. One big takeaway I wrote down was was to build knowledge, not necessarily give knowledge. And and I wonder if a lot of coaches um, would maybe just have a not not confused. I think that would be disingenuous to say that, but would would kind of maybe jump on when he's saying, you know, you you players need to have knowledge they, they'd probably want to start espousing that and, and try and set it up that you know it's that kind of empty empty vessel analogy you know I'm I'm the jug of water and you're the empty vessel and I'm going to pour all this water into you and fill you up and make you better and I, I just I you, you've got a role to play absolutely I don't think and it comes kind of back to the the game is the teacher and I, I, I'd like to discuss that in a minute but I, I just think actually yeah are we in a position where we are a, a source of water but there's probably 20 or 30 or an infinite number of other sources as well. And actually building, I, I really like that separation or that distinction between we're, we're creating something, we're not giving. Yeah, I, I, th I think um, I like that, the idea of uh, a source of water. Um, I think the danger always when we start talking about a coach and the idea of, of helping players learn or giving them knowledge or a much better term, which uh, I said earlier, building it is, well, if we are a source of water, you certainly don't want the, the person to drown. Uh, if you're giving out so much that they, you know, none of it, none of it's uh, absorbed. And um, yeah, I think that's. I remember what I, recently within the last year, maybe a little bit long. Actually, it could be two years now. COVID has got my mind scrambled, but I I went into a a performance strength and conditioning environment, and I looked at. I was looking around the gym and I'm not an, an SNC person. Uh, thankfully, I've, I've worked with some really good ones, but uh, I'm looking at this and they have four coaching points on the wall for each of the lifts that the, the major lifts. I know they have a word that's not major for major lifts, uh, but uh, the main lifts, maybe they had four coaching points. 
I thought that was really interesting because I know there's literature available in rugby that might talk about 40 coaching points about how to make a tackle. And I was thinking, well, clearly these guys are experts in their field. I mean, this was a performance or high performance or elite environment I was looking at. And yet they were saying, you know, well, four points is about the most that they're going to understand. They're not weightlifters. They're not lifting. They're not doing an Olympic lift in the Olympics. So those four coaching points and making sure they're absolutely perfect is going to get them to a level where they can, you know, start increasing their strength and lean mass and stuff like that. So I thought that was really interesting when you think about that, that idea in the context of a, an on-field, uh, you know, technique or skill that you want to develop, that really looking at what is actually necessary. Um, and, you know, as coaches, we're usually great at making lists of things that are necessary, but really um, refining that list and thinking about what's absolutely essential and not deviating too far from it to let the gaps of knowledge almost be discovered from that point. And I have to say my experience with um, with the IRFU was just, just the big rocks. I really, I really liked that. It was simple, it was clear, all the provinces knew what they were, you know, is agreed terminology, how you deliver them, how you get to that point where players are good at them. Actually, that's for everybody to work out themselves. But there was an agreement of the these are the things that we do think are important. And I, I do just think that that kind of that made those conversations so much more streamlined and that understanding because you're kind of all looking for not necessarily the same thing in terms of robots, but but you know what good looks like. And players had really good examples of what good looked like. So there was something to aim for without it being, well, this is the only way you can pass a ball, or this is the only way you can sidestep or something like that. So yeah, I, I do think there's there's definitely elements of that that you can then build on. And, and as you say, going back to our early conversation, build creativity and variation and things into. So um, Mark, did you want to jump in? Uh, yeah, just sort of touching on on some of the points about how context specific um, that that uh, knowledge, but that experience and and the building of that experience needs to be. I think there's an opportunity for us to just perhaps acknowledge the importance of um, not specialising uh, and, and and only playing one sport too early, because actually. Um, and, and it's 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 listening to to the to the reference to the to the looking at the cone behind my back, you know that that's a good example of something that perhaps not, was not contextually rich for that environment, but but actually by exposing our young players to as many sports as possible, we are exposing them to things that are contextually rich within the environments that they're in, and and actually, I you know I think Phil, you just use the example of you know if i'm wanting someone to explore passing in a different way well actually there are sports that pass the ball in a different way there are sports that uh that, that require me to kick the ball more and and actually um i know i i, I can't remember for the life of me i've spent uh, a few a few evenings trawling through google scholar looking for it. i remember a study i read some years ago that that looked at um it was to do with vision and it looked at fly half a point guard from basketball a quarterback uh, or not solo uh, but but in general these groups of people the, the players that perhaps were viewed as decision makers and playmakers within the sports that they played in and whilst it explored some of their vision stuff ultimately a lot of the 
problem solving process that they're, that they're going through is, is recognizing cues is looking for, for patterns of movement and um, it turned out I think that the central midfielder probably had the the, the, the in within football had had some of the broadest thing and then, uh, and then I remember that, that some of the references and some of the comments about this at the time were how often young central midfielders come to rugby and are good fly halves good good centers perhaps uh, because they've already got this understanding and I think it it's really nice we when we talk about context we don't have to just think about context in our setting certainly when we're developing young players we can we can explore you know what other environments might be contextually rich basketball was my second sport playing up and I know for a fact that my you know um, that will have improved my handling of the book uh, it, it probably actually improved my evasion of players because in basketball, route one is uh, not a particularly easy option sometimes when you're six foot tall and some of the opponents are considerably taller. So I struggled with that. I just I'd done rugby first a lot and then we tried having a crack at basketball and just kept getting fouled out. It, it was non-contact was <laughs> not my game, sadly. But um, <laughs> I, I might just uh, it, you know it's it's. Again, um, yeah, I think we're touching on this last week. I, I'm in a kind of a, an unusual position where rugby in in the area that I work, like I'm talking about the geographic area, is so big that there's um, not necessarily that much second um, second sport athletes. Um, and that's not necessarily representative of Ireland as a whole. In fact, I would say it's almost... Um, well, certainly in rugby terms, it's pretty unique to a very small five or six square kilometer area. Um, and it's very, very interesting because I know I'm aware of all this academic research into um, the multi-sport athlete. Um, and again, getting the definition of what that is, is quite interesting as well. Does a, is a multi-sport athlete a, a multi-sport athlete till he's 12 or is it till he's 18? You know, that's really, and, and a lot of, you know, I'm probably not as well read to, to make that distinction or if that distinction has been clearly made. Um, a lot of our, our uh, boys I would encounter just in the school environment would be probably much more likely to be multi-sport to 10, 11, 12. Um, but then they would play quite a long rugby season and therefore it becomes their kind of single sport pursuit. Um, now, it has had some unusual numbers in the last decade going on to the perform professional level it's just a very interesting kind of anecdotal experience of something that might kick the 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 general academic trend uh, and the research trend just just an interesting observation for me which i thought was worth pointing out um, um and it's it, it seems to be unusual enough i think um oh sorry mark really quickly just to come back on on that is um and it's, I, I can't remember where I read this, so I don't want to, to attribute it to, to someone wrong, uh, incorrectly. But uh, I think it's, it's certainly uh, a relevant point following on from you, Andy, is that we, whilst we acknowledge and, and perhaps playing devil's advocate to some of my previous statements, it, we, we acknowledge the role that multi-sport may play. But actually, when we look outside, and, and perhaps it is because... Uh, we're looking for a broader skill set or there is more of this decision making that takes place but actually i remember reading you know there are a lot of young musicians for example 
who to become experts at what they do focus solely on what they do and uh you know even to the extent they don't they don't take four months off a year you know where we have a, an off season and, and i understand you know certainly a break from contact for example might be important to allow rest and recovery but but actually there are other environments where you can see and even sports you know if you look at gymnasts or swimmers for example you know they they are quite focused from an early age and uh you know so that as much as you know and i like to to offer balanced views as much as i i understand the the role of multi-sports i completely understand what andy's saying and and again that's about your context and the environment you're in i don't think you know if you're going to be fighting if there's opportunities use them but if you're going to be fighting to try and force people to go and do something else that actually they're, they're not that engaged with, is it worth forcing the point? I, I love that, Mark. You're debating yourself now, which is, I mean, that's a good place to get to, I think, when you're uh, offering one side and then countering with the other. So, yeah, spot on. Uh, Jack, go on. Just, uh, Andy, you may well be aware of Des Ryan, who's at Arsenal now. I think he did a lot with the IRFU. And I think it's just that thing of then it's not one thing or the other in the sense of it's not that they specialise early or they sample early and so on in the sense that I've heard him talk before at length about how, um, you know, the Arsenal Academy, they have quite a high demand on these young guys' time. Um, but not to worry, we have a balance of things that we deliver to them. So we do deliver a high percentage of football, but we're also delivering a range of other invasion games to these young people because we think there will be some crossover, some donation of skills across the, the different things that they give them. Um, and they're not just looking for um, your tactic skills of, of football. That I think he refers to it as a curriculum of cooperative games that they run. So what are these 360 invasion games that offer the, the same cooperation skills? And actually, because they're not us, focused, obsessed, whatever the word is, on the tech-tack that's their real craft, they have that opportunity to develop those things about, hang on, none of us here have a real tech-tack proficiency, so let's find the best way to work together as a team through this. Um, again, that would be a really interesting challenge, Andy, what you say about how it, the specificity of the environment that you develop that in and whether that transfers, there's take brighter minds than mine, I think, to solve that one, but but, but it, again, it's not a thing of they specialise or they don't. It's that practitioners have a responsibility to give a balanced and rich experience to the, the people that they're, they're interested with coaching and so on. I think, um, you know, I certainly don't want to be misinterpreted as saying that, uh, we, you know, boys should be specialised in rugby only from a very young age. That's not what I believe. Or, you know, it's not really, a, it wouldn't be in, my sphere of influence are really taking much note of it. Um, and also, I also find that that worst word, you know, specialize. Uh, I mean, there's probably a lot of baggage with that word. I mean, I know that a lot of our players may be single sport from 10 or 11. I wouldn't say they're specializing in rugby, though, when they're 10 or 11. Uh, they kind of do it, you know, maybe twice a week. And that's their kind of activity. I wouldn't say they're specializing in it. Um, but yeah, I it's just a just just an observation from mine that you know, um, and I know um, Anya McNamara's got a great book on on the rocky road of development and stuff like that, and um, just in some of these weird um, you know geo spots maybe you get these kind of 
fluctuations with with how players come through. I always kind of thought, I know cricket's big in New Zealand, but I, I know that rugby's huge and, you know, they produce a lot of good players that probably specialise slightly earlier maybe than we, uh, maybe broadly in Ireland might. Just just on those those weird kind of, yeah, free, as you said, freakish geographical areas. I don't know if anyone saw uh, Neil McCarthy did a retweet from Team GB, I think, and it was just saying actually how many uh, Olympians, but not just Olympians, but like medal winning Olympians were all born on February 23rd. And it's Mo Farah, it's, I think, Brad, uh, Chris Hoy, uh, Pinson, like there's about seven or eight of the best probably ever British Olympians that are born on this one day and you just go well like is there something more to that like it was it just blew my mind and and my response was so that that's basically the only reason I didn't become Olympian is because I'm 21 days shy of that but I'm, I'm not sure that's technically true but I'm, I'm going to cling on to that as for as long as I possibly can um, guys I am really conscious of your time so I, I think that's a great place to, to kind of finish finish the discussions but um, I will get you to, to make your suggestions of, uh, of content for people to have a look at so Jack we'll, uh, we'll come back to you what are you uh, what are you suggesting yeah, um, I'm so I got onto it through my um, 34.99 that I frittered away so that I can watch the Super Rugby every weekend on Rugby Pass, um, but that, I think they fund or platform or whatever it is the Aotearoa Rugby Pod. Um, I've just really enjoyed that recently. They talk about the Super Rugby, international rugby, whatever's going on. They have a nice balance of current players on it who, as we know, they're, they're slightly less protective between their clubs, so there's some quite open discussions and debate on there. There's a little bit less jargon, which you might get on some of the more popular English rugby pods. I think you can repeat game management, game line, physicality and pressure, and you've pretty much listened to a few of them. Um, so there is a bit more nuance there. And if, you're, and, if, and if you are interested in a little bit more rugby and delving into, you know, skills and how skills translate and affect the game more than themes, then there's some they're quite critical about different players in the comp and say he's got a really nice point of difference around his pass or his catch or his tackle and um, yeah found that really refreshing and interesting over the last few weeks fantastic love that we'll definitely check that out thank you very much uh, Mark what is it you're suggesting uh, it's a podcast uh, which was run by Aaron Walsh which is called Head Noise there's only a few episodes uh, out there so it's, it's it'll be a relatively brief one for, for people to, to catch up with um, look I suppose I'd link it to two things one um, obviously there's a, a growing understanding about uh, mental well-being and, and, and various things uh, some of the some of our listeners may well have uh, listened to the Johnny Wilkinson um, podcast on high performance coach uh, on the high performance podcast and the the reality is actually it's a good thing that we've got people starting to talk about some of these struggles that went on and, and actually um, I think there's probably uh, for there's probably as many elite athletes that that probably would acknowledge that they don't it's that there is that element of it, it being their job but also there's that pressure that comes with performing in front of uh, fans uh, with social media and we saw only last weekend after the the internationals that, that players have, have perhaps and I think equally um, some of the premiership players have, have, have sort of had a bit of a barrage of abuse uh, and actually there is 
this unspoken about side of things and I think it's really important that when people have spoken about it we we hear those stories and and certainly as coaches but even we encourage players to acknowledge that this uh, is there and it's okay to recognize you know and actually after listening to that podcast a, a young player of mine came up to me and he said I passionately want to be a professional rugby player but I don't always love rugby. And can we talk about this? And can we explore this? And and and, and we've started to have those conversations. So uh, I think it's really important that as coaches and as players, we, we hear these stories and reflect on them. I think that's fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, as you say, a, a real key area currently. So great recommendation. Uh, Andy, finish us off. What are you saying? Yeah, so um, I'm going to recommend a podcast. I'll recommend the podcast broadly, but also a couple of specific episodes. It's a podcast called Wind Year Neck In, and uh, it's by Niall Ness, um, who is playing for the Warriors in the Premiership. And um, yeah, just uh, what, I, what I really like about it is the informal manner of it. Uh, I love the high performance podcast, but it, it's, it's so um, polished. Uh, it's, I mean, it's probably the experience of their speakers. I wouldn't say Wind Your Neck In is in any way amateur or anything like that. It's just... There's a real, there feels like there's real intimacy in, in some of these interviews, um, and I really like it. Um, it's almost like you're sitting there having a beer with a guy, and, and except that, you know, it's somebody that you'd be really interested in talking to if you're, if you're following a rugby podcast. So the two, um, I haven't listened to them all. I've only discovered it recently. It was recommended by a friend, but uh, there's uh, one by Steve Hansen. And I've always found Steve Hansen in the media to be really close. Like, you know, he, he gives short answers and, um, you know, he doesn't really let too much in. And I think um, Amazon did that documentary inside the All Blacks. And I always thought a better description would have been slightly outside the All Blacks because, uh, you know, there wasn't much. Um, it, it was nowhere near what they've been doing. With that There's a great program they have at the moment, making their mark on the AFL and, and all those NFL teams. It was nowhere near as inside. But I think Steve really you know, opens up a little bit, probably because, you know, he's he's retired from that role. And I thought it's a really interesting chat. The other one is uh, Damien Hughes, who's the high performance podcast, one of the um, one of the hosts of that. And again, I mean, he's a really interesting guy, obviously lots of really great books there. And the Barcelona way, I think is sitting on my Kindle ready to read uh, when I get around to it. But, um, you know, he talks about, you know, all range of things and um, I just think they're really interesting to listen to. But I would say that the podcast in general, I'm sure there's lots of great interviews there, but uh, those two um, are specific in my mind. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate that. Um, and guys, just yeah, just to, to, to as I kind of wrap this up and go to round up the roundup, just a, a massive, massive thank you for um, a brilliant discussion. I've loved this. It, as I say, it could have probably gone on for another couple of days in terms of some of the topics, but it's, uh, yeah, I think we've done them justice as best we can. So, uh, yeah, just to say, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for their time and contributions to a really, really great discussion. As always, links to the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like, and share. As always, like, thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. 